0: But, uh, yeah, Matt reached out to me, and his email was really funny. Uh, He was like, you know that the body's really wanting you back. And I was like, well, that's good. That means, like I said, it wasn't terrible. So um, for those that that weren't here last time, uh, I kind of explained a little bit about my history. So I graduated from a college called Liberty University uh, with a degree in just the Bible and and preaching. And I I worked with the church on Ohio State's campus uh, for about almost 10 years And, basically, I I partnered up with the SVC, Southern Baptist Convention, and I would go around the state of Ohio filling in for preachers when they had short notice or or needed someone to come in and preach. So, that's my background, and uh, I actually got to bring my family this week. They weren't there last time, so if you get a chance, please meet my wife, Jessica, and my two sons. First name is Orion, like the constellation. Some people think it's Orion, but it's Orion, like the constellation, and then Owen is my youngest, so please get to meet them if you can. Uh, they're a real blessing to me. So, uh, like I said, glad to be back. Um, it's The the message today is something that, that God has really been working on in me and showing me throughout reading and, and uh, praying through it. And I feel like it's a message that, like I said, it speaks directly to me at the heart. Uh, but I know it's something that as a church I feel like we struggle with as well overall. Um, so it starts off with basically... My favorite passage in all of Scripture is actually Exodus 34, six, And to set the context of it, um, Moses has been given the law by God, and he asks to see God, this person that he's been communicating with. And God says, you can't actually see me. I'm too holy for that, and you, you can't see me. But what I'll do is I'll pass before you and I'll proclaim my name. And that's what happens in Exodus 34.6. And God proclaims his name. He says, The Lord, the Lord a God, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for, for those that love me. And he says, Forgiving transgression, iniquity, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity on the fathers and the children of the children, and to the fourth and, third and fourth generation. And so, what I love about that passage is, is number one, what God says His name. It's, it's fascinating that God's name is not just one word, His name is a paragraph in Scripture. That's what He says. And in that paragraph, there's so much there. And it starts out with that He is a God merciful, gracious, and slow to anger. Those are the first three attributes or characteristics that He states about Himself. And when I study that, the question I ask to myself is I say, are those the characteristics of me? If if I were to ask someone or, or you know a person that knows me well, would that be the first three things that someone thinks of when they think of me? And when I do that, it, I get somewhat convicted because I think that's not what someone would say to me, or about me in particular. But God, that is what he's saying he is, those three things first and foremost. And when I look at it, I go... Okay, that's a problem for me. That's something that I struggle with. And then I I think broader and I go, is this something that we struggle with as a church? And I like to to think about, let's pretend we went out to the Shoe on a football Saturday and we just polled people. We just asked them, what are the first three things you think of when you think of the church? Okay, It's kind of sobering when you do that because then you, you, you realize that that's probably not the first three things that come up. You know, people don't think the church is merciful. People don't think that the church is slow to anger. And, and so this message is born out of that. It's answering that question, why is that? Why don't people view the church that way? Why don't people view me that way? And so uh, the passage we're really going to be in is in Luke 15. So if you guys want to open there and turn there. Um, So God is merciful, he's gracious, he's slow to anger. It's the first three things he says about himself. And I believe that Luke 15 um, is going to help highlight the problem that we have as a church and what Jesus is saying the solution is here. Uh, to set the context, okay, Luke 15:1 says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So situation here is all these people are coming to Jesus. Tax collectors in that culture, they were despised and hated. Uh, it's kind of difficult to have an exact correlation, but tax collectors were traitors in that country and, in the, and to Israel. They were uh, Jewish people that worked for the Roman government, um, and, and they were despised by people. And then sinners, that's self-explanatory, but... Uh, so that's who's coming near to Jesus. And the Pharisees, who are the religious leaders at the time, uh, they're upset by this. And they're saying that, that Jesus is allowing these people to come near to him. And so Jesus tells these, these couple stories here. We'll focus on the first two here. In Verse 3, so he, he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Then the next parable he says in verse 8, Or what woman having ten silver coins... If she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So Jesus' solution or or answer to the Pharisees being upset at all these people coming near to him is to tell these two parables. And the first one is about the sheep. It's very famous, that one. That Jesus is saying that the shepherd who loses one goes after the one and leaves the 99 behind. And the second parable is very similar. And that it's about a woman losing a coin, something of value. And that she she goes and searches diligently for it to find this lost coin. But both stories end the same way. They end with rejoicing. This idea that when the one is found or when the lost coin is found, that there is this rejoicing there. And the part that I love in verse 10, this totally changed my life when I read this because it's something that you kind of gloss over as you read it more and more. And if you don't see this, it, it kind of misses the point of it. But in verse 10, it says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. When I was younger, I read that and I thought it was the angels rejoicing, but that's not what it's saying at all. It says there's joy before the angels So there's one person rejoicing and that's the person before them. God is rejoicing at this. And so that changed my life because I'm saying, wow, that means God is rejoicing over this one person that's found. And it's just celebration in heaven is this picture of it. And I said, I look back to that problem that we have, that I have as a person that that I believe the church has, where are we rejoicing at people Coming to know Jesus is it something that we're, we're diligent about? Is it something that we're really praying that people would be transformed and that they would turn away from their sin? And personally, when I looked at that, I was convicted because it's not something that I'm you know I think about daily even, and it's not something that I believe that is my my heart in that moment. When I hear of someone struggling with sin or, or we'll we we'll use the term non-believers. That's not my first instance, you know, especially when there's crime involved or especially when it's uh, someone's done a horrible thing. My first instance is not, man, they need Jesus first and foremost. My first instance is I want punishment for that sin, you know, and but I don't believe that's where our heart is supposed to. I believe our heart is supposed to be in this place of we want transformation and we want repentance from sin first and foremost. The punishment, the, the crimes, that, that'll come later. But I, that, that's, being honest, that's where my heart was. And so as I look at this, this passage, I think, is this how God has always been? You know, is this just something that maybe in the New Testament changed? Or is this how God has always been? And I personally believe that God has been the same. That's what the scriptures teach. God is the same in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. And one of the verses I want to look at in the Old Testament is, is, a, is a, one of the shortest uh, books in the in the Old Testament, it comes from the prophet Jonah. So if you would turn there, it's actually the way it's structured. Jonah is pretty close in the New Testament. He's one of the latter prophets. It's called. Um, it's a really tiny book. Like I said, it's four chapters, about thirty-eight verses long. Um, it goes Obadiah, Jonah, Nahum, those type of minor prophets in there. And the reason why I want to point to this story is. Again, like these parables, I think this Old Testament story shows the exact same heart of God and that he's seeking repentance and he's rejoicing at repentance. Um, So again, we're going to be in Jonah. Setting the context for Jonah, uh, he was a prophet of God. And I'll be frank with you, I don't think he was a very good prophet of God. He, uh, he shows up here in this book, and then he shows up one more time in Scripture, and that's in 2 Kings. He, he prophesied during the reign of this king named Jeroboam, who was an evil king. And he tells him something that he was going to prosper. But then God sends the prophet Amos to Jeroboam to say, actually, that's not going to happen at all. The opposite's going to happen. And so you look at that and you go, I don't think Jonah, he may not have been following God in that moment either. But what this story teaches us, and it's very strange in that, like the other prophetic books, this story focuses on Jonah himself. It doesn't focus on his words. It focuses on his actions and what he does. And so it says in verse 1 here of Jonah that, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and he went down and found a ship going to Tarshish. So, a prophet of God is supposed to proclaim the words of God that he gives them. And so here, this prophet, he flees instead of doing what God has asked him to do. Um, I don't know why he flees. that We don't really have a context to why he did that. Um, what I can tell you about is Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. It was an enormous city. Uh, they, the archaeologists, they they've discovered that this city had a gate that was, it, it was an eight-mile circumference, okay? Massive structures in this city, and it was the capital of this empire. Now, this empire was extremely wicked, the Assyrian Empire. They... Uh, they, believe, they they beheaded people by the thousands and then they stacked their skulls up at the city gate to intimidate those that came in. Uh, they skinned people alive. They they respected neither age nor sex and followed the policy of killing babies and young children so that they wouldn't have to care for them. Just a despicable people group here. And God's saying, go and preach to them that this evil has come up to me. And Jonah just flees. And, and what happens is he goes to this boat and there's this huge storm that comes on because he's on this boat. And he tells the sailors, it's because of me this, this is coming upon you. And so he asks them to, to, to kill him. He says, just throw me overboard. Uh, very strange that a prophet would ask that. He's very, in some sense, suicidal here. Uh, why would he ask that? And then he throws him over. The, the storm ceases and these sailors actually repent. They believe in God. Not because of what Jonah taught, but because of the actions, uh, because of what God does. And so as he's in the sea, we all know the Sunday school story. He is swallowed by this fish. Uh, To me, I feel like it loses stuff in in the Sunday school story because it's not as terrifying as it should be, right? This is a terrifying thing that happens to a human being. He is swallowed by a fish and is in the belly of this fish for three days. It's a miracle. It really is. And he thought he was dying. I can't imagine being in pitch darkness and and swallowed by something and then you sit there for three days. Uh, And he comes to his senses and prays to God and and it says at the end of verse 10 of chapter 2, it says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. Again, the wording here is, is, is beautiful because it says it vomited him out. It's not this picture of this fish opens his mouth and he walks out or anything like that. Again, it's just this weird, gross story that happens to this prophet. He probably smelled horrible from the stomach acids. Just not a good situation, I don't think. And so he goes and he gets to this city, where we're going to pick up is in chapter 3 and 4 here. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey in and called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So let me pause there. So Jonah's had a lot of time to think about this message. Okay? He's a prophet of God, A, so he should know the word of God. He should have a concept of what, what God teaches. And he goes a day's journey into the city. And the best message he can come up with is this five-word sermon. Okay? This is the shortest sermon you will ever hear. This is the shortest sermon recorded in the Bible. And in Hebrew, like I said, it's five words. And he just says, 40 days until this Nineveh shall be overthrown. And you look at that and you go, I feel like there's something missing in that message. It's all about destruction and condemnation. Why, is, why, why didn't he teach what would happen if they did repent? There, there's just nothing there. It's almost as if his heart was not that they would actually repent but that he was just saying you're going to be destroyed. And so when you look at this prophet, I, again, I ask the question, was he, was he good at his job, we'll say? And I just I think this was a terrible message at the time for these people to hear, but here's what the amazing thing is. The next verse, it says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. Then the word reached the king of Nineveh, And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let the man and beast be covered in sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent. And turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So you look at this king, this, you know, what we would call a non-believing king. This is the message that Jonah should have preached. I know this is going to sound crazy, but I just think that this, this shows more of a heart of God than what Jonah actually preached. Because Jonah just preached condemnation. And this king is saying, actually, let's repent from our behavior and maybe God will turn away. And I just think that's so beautiful that God used this pagan king who did not worship him to teach his people a message about God. And it says in verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And notice this does not say because of the words that Jonah said. It says because of the king's actions, because of what he did, what he said. And this story, again, is, is amazing because of the king's response to that short sermon, and it's almost like this fear was there of God that God used to help him turn. Um, So again, this is a fantastic story when you really stop and think about it. This great empire, the king hears this message and he repents of everything. The whole city then turns. And I would just be so amazed by that, sitting there watching this occur, But we see in chapter 4 what happens. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. I mean, that is so discouraging to hear. A prophet of God, proclaiming the message of God, and people actually listen and repent, but he is angry by this. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Charshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, and listen to these words, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. So for some reason, Jonah says, the reason why I didn't want to come here is because I knew that you were merciful, gracious, and slow to anger. The verse I talked about, Exodus 34, he's directly quoting that. So he knows that God is gracious, yet he doesn't want to go preach a message about grace, is what happened with Jonah here. Very strange. So what happens next in this story is God teaching him a lesson. So verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, this is Jonah talking, please take my life from me. There's that suicidal behavior there again, very strange. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east side of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would happen to the city. Let me pause there. He still thinks the city is going to be destroyed because that's what he wants. He wants the city to be destroyed and he's not believing what has happened here. Maybe he just doesn't know. Maybe God's not speaking that to him. So he's just waiting for this destruction to occur so he can watch the show here. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. And this is how the book ends. Cuts off right there. You don't hear Jonah's response. You don't see anything else that happens. God is is speaking to, and again, it's... The most perplexing thing that this guy is so, just kill me now. I I just, I don't understand why his attitude is that way. Uh, It's just, he's very dramatic, I'll use that word. Um, But for some reason, he, he he just wants to die. He thinks there's no purpose to life here. And God uses this weird situation where he makes a plant grow up, shade him for a minute, and then it dies and withers away. And it's almost as if God was showing him this idea of, of who's in control of this universe, who's causing life to come about. And he says, why are you upset about this one little plant that comes up in a day and goes away in another day? You're more upset, you're willing to die over that than 120,000 people just being destroyed instantly. And so he's teaching Jonah this message of God is compassionate to these people, he's slow to anger, he's merciful, he's gracious with these people of Nineveh because he created them. And, and they have repented. And it's just this beautiful story, but Jonah was so angry in that moment. And like I said, it just ends about the cattle. It might be, sound like a strange thing to say at the end of a story, but I just believe God was, was trying to appeal to Jonah and say, if you don't care about people, maybe you'll care about the animals. And I think it's very clear here to see the heart of Jonah and that he did not care about these 120,000 people dying. It was something he just could care less about. Um, and like I said, this story is beautiful because, again, it's God showing his, his mercy towards people that don't deserve it. This nation did not deserve to repent. They did deserve to be destroyed. Yet God relented from that because they repented. They turned away from their sin. And I believe that as a, as a church, we should rejoice at that. Um, and if we go back to Luke 15, sorry, I'm having you flipping around here, but... Like I said, the point of that Old Testament story was just to highlight that I believe God is is teaching the same thing in that story as well as Jesus' is teaching in Luke 15 here. Um, But Jonah, I believe, is more closely related to how I behave in certain circumstances where, like I said I was talking about earlier, my heart is not to first and foremost seek and love repentance from from non-believers in particular. And so what happens is Jesus tells a third story in Luke 15. And this is probably the most famous story. Uh, You know, it's called the prodigal son. People use it all the time in in casual conversation, talking about people returning. And so in verse 11, it picks up. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. Younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son was for this. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. So that is the the famous story here of the prodigal son where I have two sons, so this, this hurts hearing this, but the, one, the youngest son was like, Dad, I wish you were dead, because that's what he's asking for, his inheritance. You get that when the father dies. I wish you were dead so I could just go spend my money on something else. He goes into this far country and squanders it on everything. And then he, he becomes a need, and becomes basically a slave, and he says, wait a second, why am I a slave here when I could be a slave for my father? So he comes back with the anticipation of working for his father, to earn a place with him, and when his father sees him, he has this compassion, and what's amazing about the story, and I've heard in the Middle East, they look at the story a little differently when they tell it, because it's it's very, uh, what's the word, taboo for fathers to run in the Middle East, which I didn't know, Uh, but I had a couple friends who lived in Jordan for a couple years, and they would tell the story, they said, oh, we call that the running father story, it's not called the prodigal son. Because in the story, the father runs towards the son, which is not normal in that culture at all. And so here, this father, this picture of a father running to this son who was lost because he's so excited to celebrate that he's returned. Um, and so the father brings him in, and the, again, the son is so focused on, I'm going to be a slave, I'm going to have to work this off for my father. And he says, no, 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 no. we're going to celebrate Give me the best robe, give me the best rings, put it on him, let's have a party to celebrate this. And I love that picture, and again, this is, this is meant to be a picture of God here, saying, no matter what we think in our hearts we have to do to earn our place with him, he's saying, no, 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 because you've repented, because you've come back, you are now my son again. And that is such a beautiful picture there that Jesus is, is preaching to, again, these people that are outcasts in the society, and he's preaching specifically to the religious as well. And it's this idea of God loves repentance. All three of these messages are about repentance, turning away from your sin, and God welcomes them back and celebrates that people come back to him. Um, and that's what happens here. Now, when I was younger, I would say about 22, I, when i Read this story for the first time. I miss something about it. Okay, I miss this this huge picture here. The, the, what's going on? Because every time the story told, I feel like it's left out that there are two sons. It says it right at the beginning, and the man had two sons. And the next this 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 parable doesn't end here. There's there's several more verses here. So if you look at verse 25. I feel like this is always left out in the retelling of the story. But now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found the first time I read that and the Holy Spirit taught me that there was a second son here, it completely broke me. Because I realized the reason why I didn't understand this was because I was the second son in most of these situations. I was the son, you know, I didn't do bad things when I was a kid, you know, I was pretty well behaved. I don't think I was a believer following Jesus, but I certainly wasn't off doing crazy things. And so you have this arrogance when you grow up that way that you do think you're somewhat better than people, okay? And if, you're in the, if you grow up in the church where if my parents, thankfully, were professing believers, there is this arrogance where if you hear of people doing horrible, terrible things and then repenting, there is this weird thing that goes on in your heart where it's, it's almost like you, you think they should have been punished in some way for that before returning. And so this son here, he's looking at his brother with hatred because his brother took everything wasted it away and then is being celebrated for something. And I think Jesus is really pointing out the hypocrisy there to the Pharisees and then to all of us reading that there's this part in our heart where we think that there should be some sort of celebration for us continually seeking and 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 being with God when that is actually the reward. The reward is to be with God and to be in the family. That's the reward always. And what God is and what Jesus is teaching here is that There there needs to be this celebration for non-believers because they were dead. They were lost, completely gone away from God, and they have come back. And so that's why we're celebrating. We're celebrating the transformation in their lives. But again, speaking about myself here, there's always that part of me that is, is not necessarily so on board with that, not rejoicing for that because I think there should be some sort of punishment. And that's my first thought. And that's why when I was building the sermon, that's the confession here, is that am I merciful when I think about these things? Is it something that I I really am passionate about? And like I said, I think this story illustrates, you know, no matter where you are, you can fit into one of these people, one of these sons. And uh, it's just something that, again, like I said, God was speaking to me. And that when I look at this passage, I think Jesus is, Really trying to point out the fact that d- do you love repentance? Is it something that you cherish and treasure and celebrate? And I, like I said, we look at the story of Jonah, and I don't think he valued repentance. I don't think he celebrated that. I don't think that was his heart. And going to this this people group that hated God, and then for me, I ask the question: Is that my heart when I look at my coworkers or when I look at anybody that I encounter that is not a believer? Is it something that I want to see happen? Do I want to see them turn? Do I want to see them repent from their sin? And so it's a challenge here. Um, You know, in in closing, what I'll say is, God is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You know, the, the part about that verse in Exodus 34 that I also love is that it says, He will not clear the guilty. You know, he, he does visit the iniquity of, of people on themselves. And, and there's two ways that, that God visits that iniquity or their sin it's through condemnation at end times, or it's through the cross of Jesus. You see, what happens is Jesus, the, the death, the murder, and the torture of Jesus was so horrific that what God says is that that sin alone is enough to cover all sin that man has ever done in its life. That sin is so egregious, so horrible, that by having that sin occur, if you believe that he did that, if you believe he died and sacrificed himself for our sin, then that covers everything else. And that's what, God te- that's what the scriptures teach about the, the, the sacrifice of Jesus here. And I, I truly believe that, like I said, if you're not believing in that, then your sin must be accounted for. And that's what God teaches about himself. He will hold you accountable for that sin. But the beauty of this is Jesus is teaching here, and he taught long ago through these stories in the Old Testament, that if you repent, if you believe that God's destruction was coming on you, but now it's, it's, it's been passed over, if you believe that, you are now part of this family of God. You don't have to earn it. It's nothing that you did. But I just think that's so amazing that Jesus is trying to teach this to us, and, and going back to, to what I said started this whole thing, asking the question, why do people not view the church as merciful, gracious, slow to anger? And for me personally, I answer that question, I go, it's because I'm not rejoicing when I see things like repentance enough. I'm not, doing, I'm not believing that people can change enough. I, I, I tend to be more pessimistic about life and think that they're just headed for destruction. And I'm more like Jonah than I am like what Jesus is teaching here. And so, like I said, walking away here, I think we all need to ask that question of ourselves. Is repentance something that you rejoice in? Is it something that you want to see others partake in? Um, And again, I'll I'll close with a quick story, I promise. This is it. Everybody says that. I'm closing, but I said that 10 minutes ago. But um, Again, this is a story that, that just spoke to me personally. There was this guy, this MMA fighter, who... He broke up with his girlfriend at the time and was having a bad day. So he got drunk, and he went over to her house, and she was with another guy. And so he decided he was going to beat them up. So he beat them both into comas, okay? And he's obviously in jail. And I heard this story, and I remember thinking, man, what a horrible guy. Who does that to people? You know, and especially using his skills as a fighter to then beat someone who doesn't have it, and especially a woman that way. I remember just thinking instant condemnation. I want this guy to die for this, you know. And you can pick any news story of what happens. You know, there's been several shootings recently, and that's just something that I think of in my heart that I want this punishment for these people. Well, fast forward a year, my pastor, he sends us, he sends me this link, and it's a blog post by that MMA fighter who was in jail at the time. And this blog post, he tells the story. He says, "My first day in prison, He's like, I was suicidal. They had me on suicide watch. I was in the hole, and I received this package. And in the package was a book. Someone had sent him. He didn't know who it was. It was unmarked. He sent him The Case for the Creator by Lee Strobel. And someone sent that to him. And he said he was so angry at God in that moment, they just threw the book, didn't care where it was, and hated God. And so he said months and months go by. And out of sheer boredom, he said he picked up the book. Not because he wanted to, not because he had any desire to, but because there was literally nothing else to do in a cell. So he picks it up, reads it, and it changes his life forever. And he says, he's sitting there, broken for what he's done, and he changes his plea. He used to be pleading not guilty for this, but he said, I'm guilty for this crime that I've committed against these people. And he's serving about a 10-year sentence. Uh, But it totally changed his life. He became a believer because of that. And when I read this story, I instantly thought, who was the person who sent that book to him? Because when you think about that, that's not the first thing I think of when I hear this news story. I wanted death for this person. I wanted him to be punished for his sin. And while he will be through our, crime, for, for the, through our system here, my first intention was not, my first thought was not, I'm going to send him this book that helped me find Jesus. And yet this guy did. Or woman, I don't know who it was, but somebody looked at that story and said, this guy needs Jesus. That's their first thought. And so, in closing, that's what I would challenge us all. When you look at people who are not like us, when they are struggling with sin, furthest thing away from God is our first thought, man, they need Jesus. They need to be rescued. They need to repent. They need to find God. And so I'll close in prayer here. So... Father, we just praise you for your word. Um, It is such a blessing to be able to open it. And any time we want to hear from you, read this book that that contains your words, Father. Praise you that you are the same, that you do not change, that you have always been merciful, gracious, and slow to anger, keeping steadfast love towards us. Praise you for Jesus and his sacrifice, that, that we in this room can say that we love you and worship you and recognize that we should have been dead because of our sin. And so we thank you for that, Jesus, that that you have rescued us, that that you have brought us into your family. And I pray for anyone in this room that, that is struggling with that, that they would be encouraged by the fact that we are part of your family, that everything that you have, Father, is ours, and that you have rejoiced over us, and that you call us to be like you and rejoice over others returning to you. So we just thank you for that, and again, we just praise you for your word, and I pray that you would challenge those in this room, myself included, to be more like you, Father. So we just thank you, and we pray these things in your name.